0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. For anyone who believed that we had hit bottom with Donald Trump or that the edge of Armageddon vibes of 2020 were behind us as we sailed into 2021, the past 10 days have been a bracing corrective or a howling wake-up call or a punch in the gut and a kick in the balls and an ominous and frankly terrifying portent that even more divisive and destructive times may be yet to come. To talk through the attempted coup staged by Donald Trump and his Republican abettors, the deadly horror show of riotous insurrection that played out last week in Washington DC from the White House to the US Capitol, and what might happen in the final days in office of a wildly delusional, utterly demented, profoundly damaged and deeply dangerous sitting president of these United States we rang our friends at an organization you might have heard a few things about, The Lincoln Project, and asked them to send over a couple of their co-founders to join us on the pod. And voila, here they are. First, former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party and former co-chair of the New Hampshire Log Cabin Republicans and two-time Republican congressional candidate, Jennifer Horn.
1: The state of the Republican Party is destroyed. The party, after what happened on Wednesday at the Capitol, has lost all integrity, all character. It has lost its foundation. It has lost its ability to advocate for anything meaningful. And what's worse, it has become a part of the effort to destroy democracy as we know it in America.
0: And second, longtime Republican political strategist, notorious negative ad maker, Daily Beast editor at large, and author of the entirely aptly titled best-selling book, Everything Trump Touches Dies... The Rick Wilson.
2: The state of Donald Trump's psyche is utterly shattered. He is completely in mental collapse. He realizes that no amount of bullshitting, that no amount of of prevaricating, no amount of spinning is going to get him out of the problem he's in, which is that in 13 days he will not be the president any longer.
0: Launched in late 2019 with an op-ed by four of its co-founders in The New York Times, The Lincoln Project announced itself and its intentions with clarity and urgency. We are Republicans and we want Trump defeated. That was the op-ed's headline. Since then, the group has moved quickly and forcefully to claim its place in the vanguard of the fight against Trump and Trumpism, in the process establishing itself as a household name in American politics. Led by Horn, Wilson, and an array of lapsed Republican operatives, Steve Schmidt, George Conway, and Stuart Stevens, among others who were disgusted by what their party has become, the Lincolners raised and spent tens of millions of dollars, cranked out countless memorable ads and viral social videos, went toe-to-toe with Trump on Twitter, and practiced the dark arts of psyops so effectively that they took up residence rent-free inside the president's head. When Jennifer, Rick, and I sat down to record this episode last Friday, I had a feeling it was going to be a doozy. For one thing, the two of them are wicked smart, charmingly brash, and firecracker funny. In other words, they have the gift of gab. And, well, it has been said by some, not me, of course, but some, that Helen Highwater's host also has a slight tendency to run off at the mouth, too. More to the point, at the end of a week that included Trump's attempt, captured on tape, to convince the Georgia Secretary of State to engage in election fraud on his behalf, the defeat of both Republicans, and the victory of both Democrats, in that state's Senate runoff elections, giving control of the upper chamber to the Democrats, and the breaching of the U.S. Capitol by armed MAGA seditionists, propelled by Trump's incitements in an attempt to violently overturn the results of the presidential election. With all of that having happened, you know, I mean, there was just a fuck ton to talk about. And that was before the news broke, while we were recording this podcast, that Twitter had permanently banned Trump from the platform that enabled his rise provided him with his main megaphone, and meant as much to him as oxygen means to the rest of us. So, of course, Jennifer, Rick, and I did what comes naturally to all three of us. We talked and we squawked, we gibbered, and we jabbered, we sermonized and soliloquized, and when we were done, I looked at the clock and said, guys, looks like we've got a two-parter on our hands. Now, I'll admit that when I said that, I was less than half serious, and the truth is, it's really not up to me anyway. The responsibility for making calls like this lies with this podcast's esteemed executive producer, Christian Fidel Castro-Russell. But when Fidel gave the recording a good hard listen, stroking his beard, puffing his cohiba, and sipping his mescaline tea, he reached what now seems like the inevitable conclusion— A two-parter is what it shall be, declaimed Fidel. Honest Abe and the project named after him deserve nothing less. And so, dear listeners, that's what you have here, an epic two-part convo with two incandescent analysts about one insanely eventful and profoundly dismaying week in the life of our increasingly frayed republic and the decayed, degenerate, decomposing administration of Donald J. Trump. So download this first part, soak it in, then either take a break or don't, then dive into part two and relish an extended excursion into eloquent never-Trumpism at a moment when eloquence is sorely needed and never-Trumpism feels more essential than ever as Project Lincoln meets hell and high water.
3: All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore.
0: So that was uh, Donald Trump giving a, a speech on the ellipse. Guys, hi, Jennifer Horn and, and Rick Wilson. Great to have you here. Um, hey, John. Hey, John. That was the speech he gave just shortly before all hell broke loose at the United States Capitol on Wednesday. And, you know, I was psyched to have you guys come on. I was like, we got to get the Lincoln Project to come on before... Joe Biden's inauguration item this week seemed like a good week just because of the Electoral College certification sham vote bullshit that was going to happen on (laughs) Wednesday. But, you know, then we had this week where it was like the Raffensperger call comes out on Sunday. Right. An impeachable call. (laughs) The Georgia Senate runoffs both go to Democrats. And then we see what transpired on Wednesday. Uh, I would say this was a week that will be in the history books and will be written about for a long time. And so I wanted to start, I guess, with you guys just by asking you for your sort of 30,000-foot assessment of the week and what you think history will write about this week in the arc of the Donald Trump and Republican Party narrative.
2: This week was the absolute collapse of what was left of the party. I mean, Donald Trump's order to his shock troops on the Mall – was heard loud and clear, and the ground had been seeded by, you know, Cruz and Hawley and Johnson and Blackburn and Kennedy and the rest of them for weeks and weeks and weeks who were out there singing from the same song sheet saying, oh, it's stolen, it's a fraud, this election is rigged, and it escalated into the violence it escalated into is a stain on Trump. It's a stain on the people that supported him in the party uh, and enabled him in the party This isn't the Republican Party of 20 years ago or five years ago or even two years ago. There was no restraint there. And the hollow regrets after there's a police officer beaten to death with a fire extinguisher and they tumbled into the seat of our legislative process and vandalized it and destroyed property there. And we're obviously after bigger fish and they didn't catch them, thank God. You know, Donald Trump could have had a normal presidency And if he ended on this note, he would still be remembered historically as a horrifying aberration.
1: History will look back at this time and write about this as the week when the Republican Party answered Donald Trump's call to try to burn down American democracy. That's what happened. And the Republican Party is responsible for it. And as somebody who has spent my entire life as a Republican advocating for Republicans, trying to grow the party, you know, it's no light thing that I say that. Since Election Day, Republicans have actively engaged in coordinated efforts to overturn the legitimate outcome of a free and fair American election. They have responded to Donald Trump's call in spite of his defeat. They have sown the misinformation, the lies, the conspiracy theories in a way that could only end up with having an inflamed mob do something somewhere in this country. And the president of the United States, the person who is supposed to be the leader of the free world, intentionally incited violence against our country. This was a seditious act. It was thought out, it was coordinated, and the people in that Senate chamber and about 140 members of the House who were part of setting this up—the effort to try to overturn the Electoral College—carry as much blame as Donald Trump does.
0: They sure do. Yeah. There's just so much to say about Wednesday, but it's not. It would be un, un, it's, It would be unwarranted to 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 skip over the what was a very big story from the very beginning of the week. I mean, which is a consequential one. Yeah. You know that Democrats won both of these seats in the runoffs in Georgia leaving us with a 50-50 Senate in which Democrats will exert not strong control but some control because of the ability of Vice President Harris to cast tie-breaking votes on on places where 51 votes is enough to pass something. And we saw as I said before Donald Trump with this extraordinary phone call two Saturdays ago where he gets on the phone with the Secretary of State of Georgia who has been out front rejecting his theories of the case. I mean, the man had been repeatedly and said, you know, I'm a Republican. I voted for Donald Trump. (laughs) But, you know, we've assessed our our election every which way. We've audited multiple times. We've taken all your legal challenges seriously, but I'm not going to bend. And Trump still, for some reason, thinks he can get on the phone with him. And through wheedling, cajoling, threatening, begging, he could somehow get him to just find this 11,000 and some hundred number of votes that would give him Georgia. I mean, apart from the delusion on display and the the mental and emotional damage on display in that phone call, there's also just a degree of stupidity that is sort of staggering. And you know, I know we all know Donald Trump's a dipshit, but like, my God, the combo platter there. I mean, do you guys think it's clear that two things happened in Georgia? One, Stacey Abrams, superhero, Democrats rallied their base, turned people out in a way that no one expected them to be able to do in a runoff election, but then also that Donald Trump's antics post-election contributed in a major way to the fact that Republicans are no longer in the majority in the U.S. Senate. Do you think that's a fair assessment of what we learned in Georgia, uh, what happened in Georgia on Tuesday?
1: That's absolutely what happened in Georgia. If Mitch McConnell is ticked off that he's not going to be the majority leader anymore, he can just walk down the street to the White House and there's the guy who's responsible for it. And not just, you know, his antics, but just the asinine behavior and statements that came from all the people close to him, all the people around him, these attorneys that were supposedly advancing the conspiracy theories about electoral fraud across the country. And Roger Stone telling people in Georgia, don't vote, telling Republicans don't participate in the election because Leffler and Purdue, you know, weren't good enough with Donald Trump. I mean, you go through the whole list of destructive, stupid, asinine things that have come out of Donald Trump and his circle. They all contributed to this. Either all of those things influenced the Republicans in Georgia to either stay home or to come out and make a statement, which obviously is what happened in the end. And to your point about Stacey Abrams, no question about it. I mean, it's some extraordinary organizing taking place on the ground in Georgia.
2: Yeah, I mean, you got to give Stacey amazing props in this thing. And, you know, when we went into Georgia, the first thing we did, basically, was say, let's just partner with these folks. You know, they're going to know that part of the job better than we ever could. Yeah. We'll do our thing. And we sent Nate Nesbitt from our political world down there, and he just built coalitions. And when he got there, he discovered that the work they'd been doing on the ground was real. You know, yeah. there had been skeptics around this, like, was it going to be big enough and good enough? And it actually was big enough and great enough um, to offset you know, the fact that Georgia is still a pretty red state everywhere outside of metro Atlanta. And by pretty red state, I mean a damn red state. So they did a great job down there. But it, I mean, isn't it weird how you know you think about the Georgia election? It feels like about a month ago,
0: right? Yeah. I mean,
2: the compression of this week has been, yeah. you know, yeah. even for living in Trump dog years, it has been uh, astounding. And and Jennifer's exactly right. You know, Donald Trump's behavior made it impossible for even his allies to stand with him yeah. in Georgia. You yeah, and, and I promise you, you know, Kemp and Raffensperger and Sterling and all these other guys down there, they're in hell. They can't go out to the grocery store now. They can't go get gas because what's going to happen to them is what's happening to anyone who's turned on Trump. But look at that footage from Lindsey Graham in, in Reagan Airport today, getting just abused by these MAGA folks who are calling him a traitor and everything else. And they're learning that painful lesson that
0: Trump breaks everything, ETTD, that's everything Trump touches yes. dies, which happens to be the book of the title of a very good book some, by who?
1: Who wrote some that? Some guy I don't dude? know. Who wrote that oh. book?
0: Yeah, I was gonna say who wrote that yeah. book. I <laughs> the idea of contributing, making rich, rick, rickety, richer. But you know what? When I said that the first time, I was like, it was kind of flippant,
2: and I thought, yeah, ha ha, ha. And now I'm like, oh god, three hundred fifty thousand dead people, and you know, it never stops. The wildest part of this is we got thirteen days to go as of the time of this recording. Shit could get much more loose. It could get much worse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. And, you know, that brings us, I guess, to, to to Wednesday, right? So we all, you know, Wednesday morning, the world wakes up to Raphael Warnock having clearly won. John Ossoff on the way to winning in Georgia. A different mood. I was in Washington all week shooting the the season six premiere of the circus. So mm-hmm. I were down there all weekend. Right. Definitely a different mood on Capitol Hill. A lot of Republicans yeah. who thought... They got that it was going to be close, but I think there was still a presumption among a lot of Republicans that they would win one at least of those seats. And the notion that they were going to lose both of them and that they were going to be in this minority status really shook people. And you wondered a little bit, is that going to change the nature of the debate over the Electoral College certification? Would people see that Trump was a big part of the problem and that maybe if the only reason you were doing this stunt on Capitol Hill uh, was to please Trump and the Trump people, that Trump is not, I mean, he's not on the ballot. He's not, right. you know, he's not magic, right? And so we're all watching that at the beginning of the, the Electoral College certification process. And then suddenly this mayhem breaks out. At the start of this, mm-hmm. I played the key elements of Trump's speech on the ellipse. We've now seen the Don Jr. speech in that same place. Um, actually, you know, there's also Rudy Giuliani. Let's hear a little bit of that right now.
3: If they ran such a clean election, they'd have you come in and look at the paper ballots. Who hides evidence? Criminals hide evidence, not honest people. So over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent. And if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So. Let's have trial by combat.
1: Look, if anybody's familiar with the behavior of criminals, it's Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, my God. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, I mean, obviously, it's, it's such a cliche by now to talk about the the incredible trajectory of Rudy Giuliani from America's mayor and one of the great heroes of yeah. America for a period of time after 9-11 to what he is now. But he is now worse than a right. clown. I mean, he's just befouled himself sure. so comprehensively and shown himself to be. You know, a moral, a morally vacant, nihilist, idiot, failed lawyer. Everything, literally, the like one of the worst people. I don't like to use Keith Olbermannisms very often, but like, really, worst person in the world. Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr.'s speech, Rudy Giuliani's speech, that trial by combat, the things that Trump said. You know, the notion that they incited this riot on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. this act of domestic terrorism, mm-hmm. this mob scene. There's no doubt about that. No, no one no. doubts that they incited it. Do you guys think it's criminal? I mean, I've been reading the insurrection statutes, the federal code on this in the last few days, and I look at that language and I say, you know, there's a pretty good criminal case against all three of those guys mm-hmm. that they, you know, should be arrested yeah. for what they did. Yeah. Does that overstate it, do you think? Yeah. Or are you look, like, I'm not yeah, these motherfuckers should go to I mean, jail?
2: Look, I'm not a lawyer, but as somebody pointed out to me today, if a leader of the Black Lives Matter, Protest had stood on the top of a podium somewhere right. and yelled, "Let's go charge the Capitol!" And people stormed into the Capitol, and killed a police officer, and four other people died. And yep. they, you know, ransacked the place. They'd be in jail right now, or dead from being shot on their way in. So uh, I think that it is important, as a norm-setting function of governance, that. They need to be told, I'm sorry, you're going to face criminal prosecution. Whether it works or not is one thing. They're allowed to defend themselves, obviously. Sure. But they need to be held accountable. You know, it's a classic fire in a crowded theater question. You know, yeah. trial by combat, take the capital, go kick ass, all these things. All of it adds up, in my mind, to incitement. I don't know if you've seen that clip over the last weekend of Ted Cruz, like standing up on a car hood or something, screaming, raving, doing the whole like arm waving. We're going to take back our government and our, and we're going to, this election was stolen. We're taking it back. And Josh Hawley walking by, giving the big high fist, you know, the whole thing. I think the whole clack of them need to be held accountable. So yeah i do think that hey, jennifer should
0: don't you think i mean look rick rightly points out i believe i don't think you're a lawyer either right none of the three of us are lawyers here right No, so we'll just so we'll just I, I get, as I read if the we statutes. think we know what we're talking exactly. about, exactly right <laughs> but i read the statute i can read english exactly. I'm, yeah I'm, as, not, as in, I'm not i can du-
1: understand words absolutely yeah, yeah. I'm not
0: dumb but, but putting aside the question of whether it's criminal incitement mm-hmm. or criminal insurrection or whatever it's just there are five dead people, right? right? right. There, was a, yeah. a, there were there were five dead dead as of now, right. as a result of what happened in the Capitol, including a Capitol police officer, uh, a Capitol police. Hill police officer, right? Who was beaten with a fire extinguisher to death, right? You know, on many occasions over the last four years, I went on television and said, if something bad happens on the basis of what Donald Trump just said, he will have blood on his hands. Right. And luckily, mm-hmm. thankfully, until now, that didn't happen in any direct way. You know, you can talk about Charlottesville. You can make some arguments, but this seems like a case where he has blood on his hands, as mm-hmm. does Rudy Giuliani, as does Donald Trump Jr. Absolutely. They have blood yeah. on their hands, for sure.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, I would go further and say, as does Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and a few others, yeah, and- right, who led this whole thing. So here's the thing, John. Um, I think there's something people really have to, really, truly understand. Two things. The first is, what happened on Wednesday, Donald Trump wanted to happen. I don't Mm -hmm. know that he woke up and said, I hope that someone loses their life today. But he woke up saying, I want to see an army of angry Americans go to battle for me. You know, this sick, disconnected world that he lives in in his brain. I suspect that Donald Trump slept as soundly Wednesday night, as he has any other night of his life. And maybe even more so, watching people literally Go to battle for him, regardless of the cost of that. That's number one. I'm sorry. There are three things people should understand. The second thing is, (laughs) the second thing is this was not a protest and it wasn't even just a riot. This was an attempted coup. This was an attack on the American government. If the people who stormed the Capitol on Wednesday had gotten what they wanted, they would have been holding our Senators and our congressmen hostage. They went prepared in case you didn't see the picture of the guy with the restraints. Um, they would be holding the chambers right now, right this minute, that they believed at Donald Trump's, you know, directive that somehow they could take the Capitol, hold the government. And as a result, Donald Trump would stay in the White House. Sedition involves, among other things, intent. That was their intent. It was yep. an attempted coup, and people have to understand how close we came to much worse consequences, much greater danger than what did unfold. Intent at a lot of planning and premeditation. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the last thing to build on something that I don't remember it now because I'm old. If it was you or Rick who said this, but um, <laughs> two bald guys, we, it's easy to confuse <laughs> um, us. There is no question. That if that was a, a mob of angry minorities of any kind, the outcome would have been very different much more deadly. There would have been many more people who were killed. The way that it is being seen and interpreted, it would have been a whole different story. And this is especially important when you look at how did the Capitol prepare for what they knew was going to be a day of riots. They knew that. There's only one person, one office in Washington, D.C. that can call out the level of security that was necessary, and that's the executive. And they didn't do it, and it was a conscious choice not to.
0: Uh, Definitely. That seems like not just a conscious choice, but a malicious choice, too. Um, Actually, I think it's a good time for us to take a quick break right now uh, and run some ads, sell some product. And then we will come back and we will talk more with Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson from The Lincoln Project right here on Hell and High Water. Welcome back, everyone, to Hell and High Water. So what do we know at this point? We know that there was a purge at the Defense Department in the period in post-election where Donald Trump got rid of people who were more or less serious people and installed a bunch of his loyalists, number one. Number two, we know now that Donald Trump, and this was something that was circulating among House members when they were in lockdown on Wednesday, a number of whom were texting with me at the time saying that the word was out that Trump had prevented the National Guard from being deployed. There was a you know, the legitimate argument about whether you should have had a military presence on Capitol Hill before uh, anything happened. But everybody now agrees that having the National Guard nearby staged, ready for this, given all we right. knew from social media about right. what was going to happen, was the right thing to do. So Trump basically had intervened in some direct way. That is what most members of Congress on the Democratic side now believe. We also know now that it was Mike Pence in the room. With the leadership, where they were in their secure location, with McConnell, with Schumer, with Pelosi, with the others that had to be had to basically contravene the chain of command, got broken because Pence had to step in and say, "Roll out the National Guard." You know, we know about these phone calls to Larry Hogan and the Virginians. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that stuff is happening, right? So, you know, I I ran up there on Wednesday afternoon, and what I saw there was not what i expected to see when i got up there about an half an hour 45 minutes after the 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 first incursion when they first got in which was once the the police presence arrived in force what they were not doing was forcefully clearing the hill right securing the premises what they were doing was letting a bunch of these people loiter around Mm -hmm and chatting with them and taking selfies with them. We've now seen the video of them kind of like letting them walk in the door. And I don't want to to besmirch all of the Capitol Hill police. But the phrase kept running in my mind throughout was fifth column, that there was some amount of, whether it was premeditated or in the moment, there was some amount of Capitol Hill police basically saying, our job is not to keep you out. Our job is to be either passive and let you in or actually help you come in. And I raise all of those things. You know, Trump's role... That What we saw in on video, and in my case, in person, to ask you guys just, you know, it doesn't seem crazy to me to hear when you hear someone, some of the military people who've come in afterwards and said, this is a 9-11 style security failure. This right, is yeah. like, we have to really have a conversation about what happened here right. this day. And there are a lot of questions and a lot of things that deserve investigation. And that was a very long question on my part, but I ask you both to like comment on what we saw on that front, the security failure well, on Capitol Hill well. On
2: I think there there needs to be a, a very deep analysis of this because if this had been ISIS or Al-Qaeda and, and a, a dozen or a half a dozen of them had been serious and armed and gotten to the chamber, yeah. this could have been a mass casualty event. This could have been something that killed right. members of the House or Senate in big numbers.
1: And Rick, uh, work. just to take yeah. it one step further before you move on, there were explosives found at the right. Capitol. It, it doesn't even have to be Al-Qaeda if these right. guys uh, had been successful mm-hmm. at what they tried to do. They yep. found
2: a cooler full of Molotov cocktails. They found three pipe bombs. There were guys in the Capitol with zip ties and not this kind right. of like like zip ties you get at Home Depot. These were the right. kind for restraining Military hostages. Grade. Yep.
0: Military. Yep. Grade. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: And... There are reports that a number of the people that were the the more serious ones, the ones who knew exactly where the parliamentarian's office was to go and Magic. ransack it, were right. a military. Uh, and uh-huh. those reports are still being validated, but they're extensive. And let me tell you, John, you, you, you know, I I've, I've spent years in Washington. I've been in the Capitol hundreds of times. Yeah, me too. Hundreds of times. You could put a gun <laughs> to my head. I couldn't tell you where to find the parliamentarian's office.
1: Right.
0: Right.
2: Okay. For sure. They knew exactly where to go. They were apparently in the parliamentarian's office within minutes of that initial breach. They knew where to go. Right. They ransacked that room. These people had a goal. They had a plan. There's something underneath this. And this is more than just, you know, Roger Stone jerking himself off. Stop this deal. There is something deeper here. And smarter people were involved. I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to have them all prosecuted. And there there are rumors also that active duty military people were showing their IDs to the guards and then they were opening the gates yes. and letting them through. Man, yes. if this
0: is the case, we have a serious problem inside our military. A serious problem. Profoundly troubling on, on so many levels, including yeah. all of the indications, as you said. This is why we need an investigation because we do not want to speculate. But if you're an investigator... There's tons of stuff that suggests inside job here and you (laughs) got to run it down. I don't know whether it's true or not, but we got to go look at that stuff. We absolutely do. So then there's like the, you know, the most fundamental in some ways, the most fundamental question about Trump on that day, which is, did he actually get what he wanted with this incursion into the Capitol? I mean, was he seeing exactly what he wanted to see? You know, we know he was down in the White House watching in real time. We know what Trump is like with television. He was, you know, almost certainly watching three, four, five different networks all at the same time. Actually, you know, we've don't. we we've heard various pieces of reporting on what Trump was saying and doing at the time, but here's one person who offers a particularly vivid account. Let's listen to what Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass had to say uh, at the end of the week.
3: Do you think he intended for the riot and the occupation, the insurrection to happen? I think Donald Trump wanted there to be massive division, and he was telling people there was a path by which he was going to stay in office after January 20th. That was never true, and he wanted chaos on television. I don't have any idea what's, what was in his heart about what he wanted to happen once they were in the Capitol, but he wanted there to be chaos, and I'm sure you've also had conversations with other senior White House officials, as I have. I have. As this was unfolding on television, Donald Trump was walking around the White House confused about why other people on his team weren't as excited as he was, as you had rioters pushing against Capitol Police trying to get into the building. That's what was happening. He was delighted.
0: So that's Ben yeah. Sass, Republican senator from, from Nebraska, talking to Hugh Hewitt, conservative mm-hmm. radio host. We also know what the video was that he put out. I'm not going to play it because I don't want to hear Trump anymore on this, but we see Trump with the video where he finally sent a video out saying people should go home, but in the process saying we'll never give up. We love, we love you. Right? Not condemning right. them, all of that, yeah. right? I think it's incontrovertibly obvious to go back to state the case you stated before, Jennifer, that this was exactly what Donald Trump wanted to see. You know, exactly Mm -hmm. what he wanted to see, making a mockery of this video that he put out under duress the next day saying, you know, they'll be condemned. We'll find out, you know, like all of the concession video that came out the subsequent day. seems like utter bullshit. And the truth was. Trump could not have been happier with how this played out.
1: Yeah, this is exactly what he wanted, like I said before. And again, to Ben Sass's point, I, I don't know what was in his heart. I don't know if he was in the White House saying, gee, it'd be great if someone died. I'm not suggesting that. But right. short of that, I, I don't think that he would have been disturbed if he heard that there were some senators who were being you know, uh, held in zip ties. Here's the thing. We can talk about what happened on Wednesday for six hours and never get to all of how horrific it is on every level. But people like Rick and I, who have been opposing Donald Trump from the beginning, not just saying, oh, I don't like his language, I don't like that he's, you know, he's crass, Like we have been saying from day one, he is a dangerous person. And what happened on Wednesday has been building up a little bit, a little bit of the time, every day of his presidency. And every day of his presidency, he has revealed himself a little bit more just how damaged and dangerous he is frankly i did not anticipate that it would blow up into this kind of violence just a few days before he would leave office like this is worse than anything i right. would have you know anticipated even as recently as election day but this is what fuels Donald Trump. So for those people, whether they're in the Republican Party or they're his supporters in the street or anybody in between, those people who are still standing here today trying to explain to us that it was Antifa, that it was somebody infiltrated the crowd, that it was this, it was that. The president didn't mean that. I mean, these people are now to blame as well. Donald Trump is a dangerous person and I'm not a a psychiatrist. If I can see it, there's no excuse for anybody else not being able to see it.
0: Jennifer has now acknowledged she's not either a lawyer or or a psychiatrist. We're going through the list of things I am not. Yes, that is (laughs) a a list, an ever-growing list of things you are not, Jennifer. Um, (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. So, Rick, we started this podcast with your thoughts about Donald Trump's psyche. And I'm curious, in that context, what you think was going through his mind in the video that he released on Thursday or before he released the video, like what had to go through his mind in order for him to release that video. I right. mean, someone somewhere somehow persuaded Donald right. Trump to concede, which is the one thing he said he would never do, including on Wednesday in his speech from the ellipse. Never concede. Got to fight hard. So explain to me from your point of view what you think happened with Trump between Wednesday and when he was, by all accounts, delighted by what was happening at the Capitol as it was stormed and seized and rioted upon. And on Thursday, when he made this the closest thing he'll ever make to a straight up concession saying, you know, he's not going to be president anymore come January 20th, even though he wouldn't mention Joe Biden's name, even if he was obviously reading from a script and not believing the words, what is it you think that triggered that, Rick? Was that a psychological or intellectual calculation or a legal calculation or what that led him to decide that he had to do this thing that he said he would never do.
2: I think the general counsel in the White House went to him and said, you are in legal jeopardy. And uh, there's one thing this famously litigious Jackoff understands is legal jeopardy. Right. And that was like a hostage video when he was reading it. and You can see the divergence of that statement which sounded more Hope Hicks and and the softer side of things in the legal office, to the statement he made when he was trying to rally the troops to invade the Capitol. That was a Stephen Miller classic. And, and it felt very unreal. It felt very stagey to me. And I think he knew he had to do it to avoid the two things he fears the most, being cut off of social media forever and being impeached again. I think he was trying to take some of the steam out of the impeachment, which if they're not going to do it tonight or tomorrow and roll on this, they're not going to do it. We're in the period of maximum jeopardy as we're recording this on Friday night, where if I were the speaker, I'd keep the House in session and roll and crush this thing, put people on notice, make the pressure rise. He was trying to prevent also, I think, any sort of 25th Amendment play inside the White House, which I've always looked at as a highly unlikely outcome. But I think he was also trying to do that as well. I can't imagine the pressure that Donald Trump is under right now for the first time in his life where he cannot escape reality. He can't bullshit his way out of it.
0: I think all that makes sense, especially I think maybe that the the notion of the social media (laughs) and doing the social media ban may have been the most important thing because that is truly is like oxygen to Trump without social media. I think he he understands that he would shrivel into a little tiny speck of dust Mm -hmm. and be blown away by the winds. Um, I love talking to you two guys. I'm going to take a really quick break, just the shortest break possible to economically support this podcast and then when we're done with that and i'm sure the commercials will be great so everybody just listen to them and then buy the products that's all very important and we'll come back and talk with jennifer horn and rick wilson from the lincoln project here on hell and high water
3: mr president senator we gathered together at a moment of great division at a moment of great passion we have seen and no doubt will continue to see a great deal of moralizing from both sides of the aisle. But I would urge to both sides perhaps a bit less certitude and a bit more recognition that we are gathered at a time when democracy is in crisis. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. You may not agree with that assessment, but it is nonetheless a reality for nearly half the country.
0: So we're back with Jennifer Horne and Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project. um, And that was Ted Cruz um, on this floor of the Senate talking about raising his objection to the certification, uh, the count of Arizona's electoral votes, I believe. That was before mayhem broke out on the Senate floor And, you know, I I want to talk about the two of them, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. One of you earlier, I think maybe Jennifer said earlier that they had as much blood on their hands as Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Rudy Giuliani. I want to start with your two respective political professional assessments of those two guys and why they did what they did. I I agree with you, obviously, that, that they have blood on their hands and they should resign. But they made this decision after Mitch McConnell tried in his Mitch McConnell-like way. He saw the disaster looming here. He said, "You know, we are not going to object to these electoral college certifications. It will be a tough vote for people to take. We don't want to do it. I don't think there's any principle at stake, but he understood that what a bind it would put his members in. He wanted to avoid it. He told people he wanted them not to do this. And then Josh Hawley said, fuck you, I'm doing it. And then Ted Cruz and others fell into line. So what happened there? Why was McConnell not able to exert his will when he normally is? And what were, in your view, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz in particular, thinking that led them down this path?
2: Well, I think one of the things they were thinking was minority leader Mitch McConnell. And, you know, it's about to get a whole lot less fun in the Senate for them. And the other part of it is they're both running for president. And they're going to go to Iowa. And they're going to go to New Hampshire. And they're going to go campaign in 14 months. They're going to start campaigning full time. And in those states... And in a lot of other states, the majority of the primary electorate believe that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him because they live in the Fox Facebook matrix. And these guys also live in the Fox Facebook matrix. Sorry, guys, my dogs are barking.
0: We're big dog fans here on <laughs> Helen Highway. Bring them on, bring them closer to the mic. They live
2: in an alternate reality now. And the people that, that they're going to be asking to support them in the primary in 2024 will believe to the their dying day that George Soros and the alien lizard people and the child predator cannibal ring stole the election from Donald Trump.
0: Don't forget Hugo Chavez. And Hugo
2: Chavez, yes. zombie Hugo Chavez.
0: <laughs> to, you know, Tom Cotton, another person of enormous political ambition and someone who had been playing in the Trumpist lane for a long time, just made a different calculation. So it's, it's right. obvious that there was political calculation in play here. And I, I get what you just said, Rick, I, I think that's right. But it also seems to me that there's a much more complicated calculation going on here, right, which is the calculation that in a Republican Party that's increasingly populist, nationalist, xenophobic, racist, and playing to the dumbest among us, um, there's a lot of paths to try to appeal to that electorate without doing something this gratuitously fawning around Donald Trump, doing Donald Trump's will. There's a way to try to be a Trumpist without going this far for Trump. So I guess I ask you, like, I mean... There's a huge risk in this, right, which is it's like no one so far has been able to claim Donald Trump's voters without being Donald Trump. So I just wonder about, even in a narrow political sense, right. whether... There's a logic to this or whether this was also just stupid, apart from also being dangerous, sedition, engaging in sedition, et cetera, et cetera. No,
1: I think it was a bad choice politically. I think strategically it was a a bad choice. Rick is absolutely right. They're both going to run for president. That's what they're trying to lay the groundwork for here. And they made a conscious political strategic decision that they're going to go for the Trump base, that that's who their voters are going to be. That's what this whole thing was, personal ambition. And I think that is going to cost them now because of what unfolded on Wednesday. But. I'm not convinced it'll necessarily cost them the primary. But what Josh Hawley and Cruz understands is that the party is with them. The party is building their future on the Trumpism that lost on election day on November 3rd. It makes no political sense. It makes no strategic sense whatsoever. So when someone like myself looks at it and says, oh, maybe they're actually just racist. Maybe they're actually just (laughs) authoritarians. Maybe they actually believe this because look at what's happened since election day. They are literally building the future of the Republican Party on the most destructive urges and principles that abraham lincoln died trying to defeat on behalf of our country and speaking of abraham lincoln i would remind people of this in 1861 in the opening days of the civil war 10 members of the u.s senate were expelled by their colleagues for plotting against the united states government that's what josh hawley and ted cruz led on wednesday they wanted to overturn the electoral college they were plotting against Mm -hmm. our government they should be expelled
0: so my view was, Rick, that this was going to be, again, long before we knew that the Capitol was going to be overrun with domestic terrorists on Wednesday, I looked at this and said, this is a horrifying exercise that we're about to undergo, but it's a helpful one. It's clarifying. Yeah. You, everybody's got to make a choice now. Recorded vote in the United States Congress. You've got to pick a side right now. Are you on team democracy? Or are you on team sedition? Right. And that would be useful for the country to know. Even useful if you're a Republican who hopes to reform your party in the Civil War, who's on which side of the barricade, right? And I found it interesting that by the time we got to Wednesday, the dirty dozen had turned into 14, right, with Kelly Leffler and David Perdue having decided to side with Trump on this. But by the time the Capitol had been secured again and the threat of violence had been eliminated, the numbers went down, right? And you ended up on the question of Pennsylvania, you ended up with- only seven instead of 14. Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Cynthia Loomis, Roger Marshall, Rick Scott, Tommy Tuberville, and Cindy Hyde Smith. Right. And on Arizona, that same group minus Rick Scott. So the Senate ended up being, you know, a bunch of these people bailed. After they saw what happened on Wednesday, they decided they want to be part of this, right? Again, not giving them credit, but they did change their minds. On the House side, 139 right. House Republicans, 139 said. You know, that thing that just happened, I don't care. I'm still going to try to overturn the will of the people here. Just tell me what to make of that in both respects, on the Senate side and on the House side, that, you know, this thing happened on Wednesday where their Mm -hmm. personal safety was in jeopardy. Any one of them could have ended up dead. Yep. And yet, because of this stunt that they all knew was going to fail, they knew there was no way that this was going to work. It was a purely symbolic thing they were doing for purely political reasons. It had blown up in their faces, and yet 139 Republican House members still went through with it. Well, there
2: are two things there. Those guys no longer raise money the way they used to. They used to go out and go in the Capitol Hill Club and dial for dollars from lobbyists. The vast majority of their money now comes from email and small-dollar donations. And the the people in the small-dollar donor pool for Republicans, they are – not just Trump. If you read the emails, the, the fundraising emails from a Republican candidate, every other word is Donald Trump. I support Donald Trump, and Trump and I and this and that, and all these, this intense degree of, of purity testing that goes on with their base plays out with dollars. So when they do a stunt, Look, this is why, like, Matt Gates doesn't believe in Donald Trump. He doesn't believe in any of that bullshit. He's a total nihilist. He's a, he makes Tucker Carlson look like a committed ideologue. He's a total nihilist. He doesn't believe in any of it, but what he wants is to be famous and to have a big email list. And so he goes out and does the performative bullshit, okay? So they all do this performative bullshit so that they can keep raising money and so that they won't get primary because they don't care about anything else. They're going to stick with the, with the script as long as they can.
0: So, Jennifer, to your point about racism, I mean, again, another thing on display here, you know, Cruz basically said what he wanted was a commission and he cited as his precedent the 1876 presidential race between Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilton. Right. Anybody who's a student of history knows mm-hmm. that the outcome of that was the end of Reconstruction and the imposition of Jim right. Crow. That's the precedent that Ted mm-hmm. Cruz right. was, was citing to mm-hmm. support his noble right. cause. Yes. Apart from the seditious, treasonous, traitorous quality to this, this is also an extraordinarily racist exercise that we witnessed uh, that triggered this whole thing on Wednesday. Does anybody in the Republican Party give a shit about that anymore? Or is it just like, we don't give a yeah. fuck. We are out front racist. That's what Donald Trump has done. If we It's brought our yeah. racism front uh, <laughs> and center, I mean, and we now embrace it. Yeah, look, let's be honest. If they had their way, they would have disenfranchised
2: roughly 20 million African-American voters in this country. Yes taking us back essentially to a pre-civil rights era turnout model. We ran an ad about that at LP and people lost their damn minds. Like, how dare you call us the Jim Crow caucus? Well, that's what they're saying they want to do. They want to undo the votes in places like Philadelphia, where African-Americans turned out in staggering numbers. They want to undo the votes in places like Metro Atlanta, where African-Americans turned out in staggering numbers. Exactly. And- it doesn't matter what they call it. The effective import of it is to disenfranchise millions of
0: African-Americans. And if that's their pathway back to power, then they don't give a fuck. They're like, OK, well, there you goes. Bet you know, I'm old enough to remember a Republican Party that tried to keep its racism exactly. on, the, on the down low. It was like, let's be subtle about this. Like the Southern strategy is racist, but we're not going to come out and just say, hey, we're racist. We don't care about black voters. All we care about is white voters. And now it seems to me that one of the legacies, at least right now, of Trumpism is that Republicans are openly embracing a racist political strategy that's just sort of like, that's what we are. We're the white party and the party of yeah. white grievance, and yep. we're not even going to try to pretend otherwise yep. at this point.
1: Yeah. I spent 20 years trying to push back on the idea that the Republican Party is inherently racist, mm-hmm. making the argument, you know, engaging in the debate, constantly trying to make the argument that there are millions and millions of Republicans that we are the party of Lincoln, that you're talking about just a couple of people on the fringe and that we can't allow that to, you know, take over our message and take over our party. And what I have learned over the past five years slowly, and maybe, you know, I need a knock upside the head. I should have figured this out a lot sooner now that it's so clear is that's not true. I think there are millions of Republicans who are absolutely not racist, who are not bigots. That's not why they voted for Donald Trump, but it is clear to me that there are millions who are. And more importantly than that, it's not just that Donald Trump has made it okay for, you know, all those people in the crowd, you know, at his rally and millions of others across the country. The problem is not just that he's made it okay for them now to express the worst and ugliest things that are in their hearts. What has happened in the last five years is that the Republican party has figured out that there's a market for this that there's a fundraising opportunity with this, that there is a vote-getting opportunity with this. There was a time when we had a class of leaders in the Republican parties who rejected that, who said, there's the door, don't let it hit you on your way out at a convention, who no matter what the ugliness in parts of the party might've been, at the top of the party, we had leaders who rejected it or at least made a public show of it, you know, so that people like I believed it. That is gone. Ronna Romney McDaniel, who just got reelected uh, overwhelmingly to be chairman uh, for another two years of the party, has not said a word about this. She has not spoken up. Has she said anything publicly since Wednesday? When was the last time she said anything about the, the president's racist, bigoted, ugly attacks not representing the party? The Republicans on the ballot, when was the last time there was a Republican who said, vote for me because I'm going to fight against the racism of this president? It's gone. They are building the future of our party, of the party on this. I can't say our party anymore. I've left the party. I'm an independent. This is exactly why.
0: Okay, friends, that is it for this first installment of our special two-part episode of Hell on High Water with the Lincoln Project. If you are digging on this conversation, and I mean, seriously, what half-sane, half-sober, semi-conscious person wouldn't be into this? Then run, don't walk, run to whatever podcast app you happen to use and download the second concluding and even more exciting and engrossing installment of this trial between me, Jennifer Horn, and the Rick Wilson of the Lincoln Project, in which we discuss the threat posed to America by Donald Trump in his final days in office, and we react live in real time to Trump's permanent expulsion from Twitter. Helen High Water is a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks to Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson for being here. If you like this episode of Helen High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It helps people to find out what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sarah Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel castro Rossell is our executive producer.